You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Katie Putz, The Diplomats Managing Editor and Resident Central Asian Afghanistan Expert. Katie, how's it going today? Going all right. Got a little bit of snow today in D.C. Yeah, no, uh, things are pretty snowy out here, too. It is a, it is a nice setting, at least, uh, for uh, today's discussion, um, which, uh, unfortunately, I don't think is going to be too cheerful. Uh, so as listeners have been um, probably aware for the last few episodes, we have been talking about the president-elect's inbox here in the United States, um, you know, not to uh, make this podcast more America-centric than it needs to be, but I think this transition in particular merits some focus because there are consequences for uh, the entirety of the Asia-Pacific region as Joe Biden um, prepares to inherit the Oval Office on January 20th. Uh, so as part of the last in the series of these episodes, uh, we've talked to uh, I've talked to every other editor at The Diplomat so far about other parts of Asia. But today, uh, Katie and I are going to chat a little bit uh, about Afghanistan, where the United States has now been at war for more than 19 years, and uh, a little bit also about Central Asia, uh, with with the full acknowledgement that Central Asia is probably not going to be at the top of the president-elect's agenda in any real way. Uh, but I'm hoping Katie can share some of her insights on uh, really what folks uh, in Washington should be aware of in that part of the region um, as as 2021 approaches. Uh, so let's take a step back first, and I just want to offer some context before we jump into today's conversation, Katie. So uh, 2020 has really, I mean, you know, obviously it goes without saying it's been a difficult year for nearly every country, certainly Afghanistan, which uh, hasn't been spared from the pandemic on top of um, the regular uh, series of violence. But we had a very, um, uh, a report came out just a few weeks ago from uh, Brown University that included uh, just horrific stats on uh, civilian casualties, which uh, spiked under the Trump administration, uh, which the report attributed primarily to a adjustment to the rules of engagement in Afghanistan uh, as, as the administration has tried to hold back um, both the Taliban and the Islamic State. On February, uh, on February 29th, earlier this year, uh, the leap day uh, in 2020, uh, the United States concluded an agreement with the Taliban, uh, which was initially regarded with a, de uh, with a degree of optimism uh, before uh, realism, let's, um, so to speak, sank mm -hmm. back in. Um, and the implementation of that agreement, uh, let's just say, has been uh, less than ideal uh, with um, disagreements over everything from prisoner releases uh, to... Uh, the secession of hostilities between the sides, uh, all all sort of being up in the air. Uh, there are a few positive signals. Uh, we had an intra-Afghan agreement earlier this month uh, that is supposed to lead to talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban in Doha, Qatar in January. But we'll see if those talks happen. Um, and the final piece of context, I guess, is the surprise withdrawal announcement by the Trump administration uh, after the U.S. presidential election was concluded, noting that the United States will reduce its troop presence to around 2,500 in Afghanistan um, by the 15th of January, just five days before the inauguration. And that's the lowest uh, troop level uh, since the original invasion back in 2001. Uh, so, Katie, I guess the place to start um, is probably with uh, the February 29th agreement. I mean... Just bring us up to speed a little bit. I mean, I offered a little bit of context, but where does that agreement stand? And and, and do you think the Biden administration is going to, um, you know, are they going to really look to build on that? Or will there be an attempt immediately uh, in, in their first months in office to uh, try and build on the legacy of that agreement in the political sense? Because, I mean, especially with the realities of this troop withdrawal coming into place, um, the administration's options are going to be somewhat tighter than they would be otherwise. So uh, what's your appraisal of the value of that agreement at this point in December 2021? So I, I think the 
the core feature of the agreement for me at least is that it is what it is in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, it, it lays out for a document that the Trump administration wanted to say had terms and conditions and sort of the idea of a conditional withdrawal. The United States will withdraw if ABC. Uh, those conditions have been really loosely interpreted, which is how I view the, the latest announcement of another um, sort of step in the withdrawal, which is that, that re reduction down to 2,500 by mid-January. Um, the agreement set out a timetable, um, which is predicated on the Taliban sort of fulfilling a number of conditions. I think the most important to discuss is its continued uh, association with Al-Qaeda. Now, the Taliban says that it's cut ties. A number of analysts, including a report this summer that came from, from the UN, say otherwise. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, the United, it, it, the way that I, that I keep looking at this is that the United States sees one thing in the agreement, and the Taliban sees another thing, and they both accuse the other one of violating this agreement. Meanwhile, the Afghan government wasn't a party to that agreement, so it just sort of layers on these contradictions that make it almost kind of useless, except that the Trump administration is adhering to that timeline. And the end of that timeline is in May 2021. Um, and I think the Biden administration, as it comes in, is going to have to, as you sort of laid out, address that quandary of whether it's one going to follow through with the plan set out by the Trump administration to just get out of Afghanistan in the spring. Um, I think I, my intuition tells me that the Biden administration is not going to do that, primarily because the Taliban has not fulfilled all of those uh, prerequisites. The intra-Afghan talks are still in sort of the extreme early phase. Uh, the agreement earlier this month was a it took three months to achieve a three-page document that sets out the rules for negotiations. Mm -hmm. So we're not even talking about an agenda yet. Right. Um, and we can actually talk about that. But I, I think that timeline has stretched out. If we go back to that original February agreement, it very optimistically wanted intra-Afghan talks to start in March 2020. So, you know, if that part of the timeline is so far behind I don't know how the rest of this is really going to work out and that the Biden administration, you know, probably can kind of pause with the, 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 with further withdrawals until sort of the situation, the political situation can stabilize. Um, but I, I'm not privy to how they're thinking about it quite yet. Yeah. I mean, I think something that's been interesting, um, and I guess this is a new development uh, since we uh, last did this podcast, which is, that uh, Biden has uh, designated uh, f a retired general, Lloyd Austin, a former Central Command commander um, for his uh, Secretary of Defense role. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about the Austin appointment uh, that I think is outside the scope of our discussion today. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, I've wondered the extent to which Afghanistan weighed on this decision. I mean, I mean, clearly with a formal uh, with a former CENTCOM commander, um, this is sort of a natural question that comes to mind. I mean, obviously, Afghanistan mm -hmm. was not a major factor in the presidential campaign. I mean, it wasn't a major factor in the 2016 campaign, let alone 2020. Americans are fatigued. Nobody really seems to be that interested in talking about Afghanistan anymore. Um, but do you sort of share that view? I mean, is this is this something that you think informed the Austin pick? And, you know, we don't really know a lot about Lloyd Austin's views on matters of policy, but we do know that he has experience uh, running CENTCOM. Um, and if there, uh, you know, if push comes to shove in Afghanistan, um, 
the kind of advice that he might give President-elect Biden, um, where where might that go uh, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it certainly is significant that he has that experience with CENTCOM. Um, and, and that that has obviously been sort of the most active combatant command in the last two decades. Um, and so I think it is important that he has that experience and that should inform sort of his understanding of what's going on in the region and, and sort of what the appropriate track for the United States is. I think we also can't discount um, that Biden himself has his own views on the war in Afghanistan, some of them very personally and deeply held uh, because of his, his uh, son's in, um, service. And, and I think, you know, in the Obama administration, um, you know, a lot of people have said that Biden sort of preferred a more limited, tightly focused counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan. And so he might actually end up getting that, you know, if you sort of pause the withdrawal at a couple thousand troops in Afghanistan, maybe that's the pathway that that this goes down, that the, the mission shifts again from sort of its current sort of train advised to to that counterterrorism mission. Now, I don't know that that will necessarily happen, uh, but I, I think that it is, you know, important to not discount that Biden has plenty of sort of uh, skin in this game and experience thinking about Afghanistan, that, that I do think he's going to have his own um, thoughts about how, how this should go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and hopefully, you know, the appropriate amount of care for the fact that, that you know, this while you know we can talk about the United States as being at war in Afghanistan for two decades, the the people of Afghanistan have been enmeshed in various wars uh, with a lot of outfl- outside influence for you know going on for forty years at this point. Um, so it's sort of I, I do think that that's something we shouldn't lose sight of. Right. I mean, you know, one risk that strikes me. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know you raised a very important point about Biden's prior views. I mean, he was famously opposed. Uh, to the surge um, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and uh, generally, I think, has a much more um, restrained view of the role that the United States should be playing in that country. Uh, but there is sort of that risk that, you know, um, looking at Afghanistan, I mean, just looking at trends uh, with the Afghan National Army and security forces over the last few years, uh, it's clear that without robust U.S. support, particularly air support, uh, the Taliban do have a very good fighting chance. And I think this year we've seen plenty mm-hmm. of evidence of uh, campaigns and strikes everywhere from Herat to Helmand, Kandahar, Badakhshan, Jalalabad, Uruzkan, re- even recently of the Taliban making significant headway on the battlefield. So I think a risk for Biden, I mean, just in terms of the political optics, I mean, he will be president starting January 20th. And if, you know, we get that sort of fall of Saigon moment, so to speak, where Kabul mm-hmm. is overrun with Taliban fighters, I mean, Biden will, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly, he will have to own that. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, the way to which uh, the ways in which that might weigh on early decision making on Afghanistan. But I think, I mean, just looking at what he said and what his what people around him have said, Afghanistan just won't be a priority. I mean, how do you um, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's if anybody had figured out the solution to how the United States can gracefully exit Afghanistan, um, they would have hopefully have told somebody by now. But I, I don't know what that solution is. And that's because I don't know that there's a very graceful exit for the United States in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it will be interesting to watch how the Biden administration responds to what the Afghan government says that it wants. Um, and I think that sh- should be the voice that they listen to in terms of, you know, what is it that the Afghan government needs to 
continue to kind of hold out against the Taliban while it continues to negotiate with the Taliban, because the Taliban is very clearly using uh, its strength and its 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 uh, battlefield successes, or even just the reality that it can continue to carry out attacks essentially anywhere that it wants. Um, it's a pressure tactic. And I, and I think I read a report today from Tolo News, which is an Afghan news organization um, that had seen sort of the preliminary lists of, of agenda items for both the, the Taliban and the Afghan government. And the most interesting feature of those lists is that on the Taliban's list, the like number one item is talking about an Islamic government. And the last item is a permanent ceasefire. The Afghan government's list is complete opposite. They want a ceasefire first, and then the last thing they want to discuss is sort of the political questions. And so it'll be really interesting to see if they return to talks in early January. They're supposed to resume talks on January 5th. There has been some agitation in the Afghan government to move the talks from Doha back to Afghanistan. The Taliban doesn't want to do that. Um, uh, Ashraf Ghani has endorsed that idea. We'll see. Uh, but their their agendas are very, very far apart. Um, and the Taliban is using sort of the security situation and the the instability that it's able to generate in the country as as pressure. Um, so the Afghan government is going to want and need the United States and and sort of coalition partners to help it stand up. Um, and and I think that's that's going to be a really tricky sort of needle to thread while also, the United States very much wants to leave sort of Afghanistan um, and leave the war behind. I, I don't know that there's a graceful way to do that. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> there is, uh, <laughs> like, you know, it, it's about finding the least bad option. And, you know, then you got to ask least bad for who. And exactly. unfortunately, I think the answer is what's the least bad for the United States is probably mm -hmm. not the same for the Afghan government, uh, which I think will just have a very difficult time in 2021. You know, another yeah. another trend that I think has really jumped out about, um, at least throughout the Biden transition, um, is this, I mean, there's clear signaling from the administration that, uh, or the upcoming administration, that they will um, seek to re-emphasize diplomacy, multilateralism um, in their approach, uh, not only to Afghanistan, but just problems around the world. And I think um, Tony Blinken's appointment early on as Secretary of State spoke to that. Uh, and of course, when we think about Afghanistan after the U.S. leaves, um, you know, we talk about other countries and their interests in that region, too. Um, Pakistan being the big one, uh, you know, Obama in his recent memoir is quite open about the fact that that was something that frustrated him quite a bit. The Pakistani states, or rather the Pakistani military's sort of persistent strategic interest in ensuring a, a weak state in Kabul. Uh, but beyond Pakistan, uh, you know, the Iranians have interest in Afghanistan. Uh, the Indians have interest there. Uh, the Chinese, the Russians, Central Asian states uh, are eager to at least see Afghanistan retain a modicum of stability. Um, so if there is going to be an attempt to sort of shift the burden um, from the United States being the primary guarantor of security in Afghanistan, um, do you think the Biden team is going to be well positioned to at least expend some political and diplomatic capital talking to these other countries about about the Afghanistan uh, or, or about the future of Afghanistan? I mean, there's no indication right now that on day one they'll set up some sort of uh, multilateral consortium to to uh, discuss these issues. Um, but that could be an interesting development, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to have to. Um, you know, the there still is an overriding interest in sort of stability in Afghanistan, even if the United States doesn't see providing that stability itself as a top priority or a top possibility given sort of other things that are pressing that concern. Um, I think there's certainly, Pakistan is an extremely important partner in that, but also an extremely difficult partner in that. 
Um, and the same can be said of Russia and China. Uh, obviously, Iran is is its own quandary, um, but does have its own interests in Afghanistan. And, and on the part of the Central Asian states, they certainly want to see stability prevail in Afghanistan and are, you know, are, but they are not going to get involved and do it themselves. Uh, I, I think uh, the, the most prominent shift in sort of Central Asian view on Afghanistan has been in Uzbekistan, which has in the last couple of years begun talking about Afghanistan as part of Central Asia, as opposed to sort of this external scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has really, they've heavily focused on the economic relationship and sort of the benefits that stability can bring to everybody in the region, um, including Uzbekistan. But I, you know, they're, they're not going to send troops into Afghanistan to like help keep that situation stable. Um, all of the Central Asian states sort of made their peace with the Taliban when the Taliban was in charge in Afghanistan. And so, so they, they are seeking some kind of solution that will let everybody get it, get on with business. Um, and, and I, the, the Biden administration is definitely going to have to incorporate all of these various different, um, sort of layers of interests from neighboring countries when it comes to sorting out how to, you know, leave Afghanistan, but also not leave it totally disconnected. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a good segue to, um, I guess, the second part of our conversation, which I guess is going to be pretty brief. But I did want to sort of give you an opportunity to just um, give us sort of a layout of what the administration should keep an eye out for in Central Asia. I mean, again, you know, Central Asia is not going to be the cornerstone of American policy in Asia or in, or in Eurasia, but uh, I mean, it is. It's it is, not. <laughs> it is. It is still a region that you know um, matters, and uh, there are folks at the State Department and DoD who uh, do think about this part of the world. So, um, what are we likely to see in Central Asia? Um, uh, I guess in the um, in the six countries, in in the first half at least of 2021. So what I what I'm hoping to see and what I kind of anticipate seeing is is a continuity um, in. Gosh, it was February 2020. In early February 2020, the Trump administration um, finally got around to unveiling its Central Asia strategy. Every U.S. administration kind of gets to Central Asia last, so that in of itself is not necessarily unique. Um, And I wrote a lot about it at the time because it, it also represented sort of a continuity of policy, which was a really interesting divergence from a lot of other Trump strategies in different regions of the world. Um, my cynical take on this is I don't think Donald Trump pays that much attention to Central Asia it's, it's itself. So the diplomats who have been working on that region for a long time kind of got to run the ship on it. And it, I, I think that showed in sort of the engagement that the United States had with the Central Asian countries in the last couple of years were fairly um, stable, followed a pretty decent course uh, of, of action. Um, but when it comes to the incoming Biden administration, they're going to, you know, obviously look at Central Asia and and it is a slightly different place than in the Obama administration if if only for the changes that have happened in Uzbekistan since 2016. So in 2016, Uzbekistan's longtime dictator died um, and a new president came in with with kind of this sweeping reform agenda. Um, I certainly and in all regional analysts have sort of their quibbles with with how extensive the Uzbek reforms have, but the the attitude of the government has much been much more open, much more open to engagement. Uh, I already mentioned Afghanistan, but but the government prioritized regional engagement and international engagement. And so I think Uzbekistan is going to be a much bigger partner for 
the Biden administration than maybe it was for the Obama administration, just because of that that change in leadership. Um, and and uh, another sort of area that uh, the Biden administration is definitely going to have to pay close attention to is sort of the ongoing uh, just political roller coaster that is Kyrgyzstan. Um, it would take me a while to explain the whole thing, and I did that in a previous podcast. The roller coaster has continued, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, <laughs> I guess is the best word for it. Yeah. Pay uh, pay general attention to Kyrgyzstan. We'll leave it there. But yeah, if listeners are interested, um, I think I think Katie, uh, without taking a breath, spoke for around five minutes explaining <laughs> everything that was going on in Kyrgyzstan, and I was sort of awestruck. So I recommend uh, listeners to go back to uh, get a sense of uh, what's been going on there. Um, but Katie, uh, thanks for joining me today to sort of uh, set the stage uh, for Central Asia, but also to talk through some of the issues I think they'll be facing the president-elect on, on Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks a lot. It's great to have you back on. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Great. Um, So for our listeners, uh, this will be, I think, the last in our series uh, talking about the Biden administration's upcoming um, foreign policy agenda uh, in Asia. Uh, I apologize if we haven't covered um, some parts of this vast region that we try to cover at The Diplomat, uh, including, I guess, the Indian Ocean region and the Southern Pacific uh, were notable uh, exceptions in this series. Uh, But we will get around to those, I promise, in 2021. Uh, with that said, I uh, do want to wish all of our listeners uh, very happy holidays and a happy new year. Um, I'm not quite certain if there'll be another episode before we get to 2021, um, but this has been a very difficult year, and I hope everybody listening um, has kept healthy, and here's hoping for a much better 2021 ahead. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon with more. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.